So if you're kind of new with us, um, you may not know that since last Easter, we've been reading through the Bible. There's a reading plan on the U version that the Bible Project guys did, and we are now out of the book of Acts and beginning in the book of Romans. And if you started it and you stopped, I would encourage you to just pick that back up, right? You can skip all that, and God's not going to be mad at you. <laughs> You're not going to get an F in your reading plan. It's just start over. You just get a do-over. And, uh, but we went through the Old Testament on Sundays, kind of coinciding with the Bible plan. And what we're doing from the beginning of the year up until Easter this year is kind of using the Gospel of John as our, our guide to look at the life and ministry of Jesus culminating in the cross and the resurrection. And for the next couple weeks, starting today, I'm going to teach from some of the various parables of Jesus. A parable was Jesus's way of teaching a deeper truth in the form of a story, a short story. So when you read a parable, you have to remember, not have to know how to read it and what's the meaning behind it. Today we're going to look at the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee. Here's what Jesus said. It says, then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Two men went to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee and the other was a despised tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed this prayer. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other people, cheaters, sinners, adulterers. I'm certainly not like this tax collector. The audacity, think about that. I fast twice a week. I give you a tenth of my income. But the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, for I am a sinner. I tell you, this sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. As we read this story and talk about it, we all have to admit there's a little bit of Pharisee in all of us. We all can be overconfident in certain areas of our life, or we can look down on others. We're all somewhat guilty. I'm going to unpack in a minute what a Pharisee really was and, and what was their point of view, because sometimes they get a super bad label without looking at some of the, the good parts of, of their life. But humility is a funny thing, right? How do you know when you're humble? If you say you're humble, you're no longer humble. Like you just like nix the whole thing there. You're no longer humble if you acknowledge, say, oh, I'm so humble. How do you and I know if Jesus is talking to you and I in this parable? How do we know that? Jeff Foxworthy, the famous comedian, right? You might be a redneck if. Can you say redneck? Is that okay to say anymore? I don't know. I might get in trouble, but you might be a redneck if, and he said, you might be a redneck if you cut your grass and you find a car. <laughs> he said, you might be a redneck if your wife tells you to um, move the transmission so that she can take a bath. Like, took you a second for that one. 
You might be a redneck if the Salvation Army won't even take your mattress. Like, that's bad, right? Well, you might be a Pharisee if you're overconfident in your own righteousness. You might be a Pharisee if you've looked down on someone with struggles like addiction. You might be a Pharisee if you've looked down on someone who's different. Someone's been to prison, whatever it is. We're all guilty of it. Can we just admit that? We all have some judgmental stuff that goes on in our lives. And Jesus is exposing this so that we become like him. And that we we become in the way we see people like him. We judge people before we know their story. We judge people on hearsay or somebody says something and then we, 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 it's easy to look down on somebody when we don't really even have all the facts. We're all guilty of this. The reality is judging others makes us feel better about ourselves. If I'm not like so-and-so, like the Pharisee, I'm not like this tax collector, so I can feel good about myself. So what does Jesus know about all of us? He knows this. That all of us are looking to find a sense of approval and self-worth. All of us are looking for that. From the time a a baby can talk or a a toddler can talk, it's, Daddy, look at me. Mommy, look at me. Watch. And it's like, come on, make make sure I feel good about myself. Teenagers, as, as you get into those teen years, it's, what do my friends think about me? Will my friends approve of me? Will I fit in? And then... When you become an adult, it's, am I successful? Do I earn a, a, enough living? Or can I be proud of my job or whatever it is? We're all looking for that. And we're born, each person, each human being is born with two crucial needs. And God gave those needs, and only he can meet these two needs. The one, first one is security. A sense of security that I'm loved without needing to earn it. Now, only God gives uncond- truly, truly gives unconditional love. But he created us with that need and wants us to understand that sense of security. Then he created us with the need of significance. And the, the need of significance is that my life counts, like I matter. And my life can have impact on other lives. Security and significance. We got to know that when we look in the wrong places for those two things, we're not going to feel approved or have a true sense of self-worth. What else does Jesus know about us? He knows that all of us are looking to find something to remove our guilt and shame. We're looking for something to remove our guilt and shame. So often what we do when we know we've blown it, we've, we've, we've failed, we've, we've sinned, we try harder, right? I'll just go, I'll get better. You ever have any of those habits or things that you do that are character flaws? God, I'm so sorry I did it again. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I did it again. I did it again. And we try harder. We make resolutions. We do New Year's resolutions. How are those going, by the way? Are you, are you doing good at it? Because we, we, we try in ourselves to remove that guilt and that sense of, Ugh, I know I'm not measuring up. And then the enemy comes with condemnation and tries to make us feel even worse about ourselves. And then Jesus knows this. He knows that all of us are looking for a sense of righteousness or a sense of rightness, so to speak. We want to know that we're right with God 
and that we're living the kind of life that God wants us to live. So here's good news. Jesus wants us to find all of these things by learning how to live from the inside out rather than the outside in. Outside in living is looking for validation as we compare ourselves to others like this Pharisee. I must be okay if I'm not like somebody else who's really blown it or been a failure or whatever. Outside in living is, a, is an approach to be accepted and approved by keeping the rules, by following my lists. If I follow the lists of rules, then I'm okay. That's outside in living. God wants us to learn, Jesus is trying to teach us to learn to live from the inside out. Inside out living first looks inward and we become aware of our own stuff before we can see or point out the stuff in other people's life. Insert a different word for stuff if you want to. It's, it, we, we, you see your own stuff, my own failures, before I'm pointing it out in, in other people. Inside out living doesn't compare with others, it compares to God. We look at God, Jesus, as the standard. So there's a pattern in this parable of twos, the number two. And the first is two men. There's two men in here. The first was a Pharisee. And the word Pharisee literally means separate ones. They were the religious elite of the Jewish people. They followed all these 600 and something commands and laws in the, in the Torah, in the Old Testament, all the outward things about the dietary laws and all the things that made a good Jewish person Jewish outside, on the outside, what they wore, how they, how they, how they ate and so forth. But it's, it was easy over a period of time for the, there was a slippery slope for the Pharisees to begin to take these laws and, and make them bigger and bigger and bigger and just become a ladder to God. If I do these laws, then and outwardly, I'm good. I'm, I, can, I can get to God that way. God never intended the law to be a ladder to get to him. The law in the Old Testament actually ordered society. It took a pagan world to show what it really meant to love God and, and to love your neighbor better. There's a, one command in the book of Leviticus where it says... Don't cook a young goat in its mother's milk. It's like, huh, sounds weird to start with. But don't cook a young goat in its mother's milk. And over the years, the, the Pharisees took that to, even in modern day Israel and Jerusalem where Orthodox Jews live an Orthodox life, you won't get a cheeseburger in Jerusalem. You're not going to get a pepperoni pizza. Because that's milk and dairy together. So they took that command and broadened it this way to the point where I have friends in Israel. Um, this lady's sister married an Orthodox guy. And they lived the Orthodox lifestyle. And they, her sister and her husband refused to come to their house because they don't have two kitchens. One for dairy and one for meat. And so they won't come because it's not kosher. And... Sounds silly, doesn't it? 
sounds, sounds silly. I mean, there's people who have come up with the dietary and say, really, it's not good for your digestion and, and all that. Maybe, but still dig a cheeseburger and a pepperoni pizza, right? Like, um, but before we say that sounds silly and that's extreme for that couple to refuse to come to their house, like, we can become elite in our own minds in a different way. They saw themselves as more elite from a, a kosher lifestyle, but we do that too. We do it spiritually, we do it racially, socially, somebody looks different, and we're guilty. We even do it theologically. We feel like, oh, I got the be-all, end-all of the Bible and the interpretation of it. I, it's my interpretations, right? And we make ourselves elite, and we're guilty of that. The second man in this story is a tax collector, a tax collector. Now, the tax collectors were the scum of the earth to their fellow Jews because they were Jewish people who collected taxes from the Romans, from their fellow Jews, and they extorted money along the way. The Romans said, we want X amount of dollars in taxes or shekels probably or whatever. Um, we want this amount of money. And then if you take more, that's, for, that's, that's up to you. And they became very rich in, in their lifestyles. And they were really, really looked down upon. So Jesus is taking two extremes of religious elite and the worst sinner you could think of. The, the tax collectors were hated. They were rich, but they were bankrupt on the inside. So these two men now represent two kinds of people. First one is the proud. The Pharisee was very proud. And this type of pride that Jesus is exposing comes from when we compare ourselves to others in whatever facet of life, whatever facet of life we compare ourselves. Pride is an inaccurate view of ourselves. It really is. It's an inaccurate view that ends up distorting the way we, we see people. This guy was proud because he lived outside in. He's done all the laws and proud of his accomplishments in that. But here's the deal. Before we judge him, there's another kind of pride. There's the pride of refusing to admit our helplessness. We don't admit our helplessness to God, and we don't admit it to one another. And that just ends up causing us to live in pride. Pride is trying to be righteous or right with God without Jesus. That's really what religion at the end of the day is, is trying to be right with God without Jesus. And then, you see, you have two kinds of people, the proud, and then you have the humble. The tax collector was humble. It was an inside-out approach. Humility causes, to see our, causes us to see ourselves accurately, correctly. Humility comes when I compare myself to God. And humility is acknowledging our helplessness before God. Every time I get ready to come up here and teach, I always tell God, Jesus, apart from you, I can do nothing. And this isn't about me. I need to remind myself all the time. And so whatever you do in your life, whether it's being a mom, a dad, a husband, a wife, employee, employer, Jesus, apart from you, I can do nothing. I need your help. I'm dependent solely on you. 
The book of James, James is Jesus' half-brother. He wrote a letter to the church, and he quotes a proverb where he says, God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So today, two teams are going to be each other's opponent, right? Trying to win. When I'm proud, I refuse to acknowledge my helplessness, or I'm judging other people, or any of that kind of stuff, I'm putting myself as God's opponent. How many know God wins every time? Like, you're never going to win when you are, 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 thankfully, he's graceful, patient, and and good, but he's not going to lose. But it says he gives grace to the humble. Grace is the power to do what you could never do on your own. That's why we ask him for grace every day. It's the power to do what you could never do on your own. Pride locks the door to grace. Humility opens that door and lets grace come in and flood our lives. So the two men, two kinds of people, and then two prayers. It says the, the Pharisee stood and was praying to himself. I mean, no, like often when we say we're going to, like somebody's in an accident, it's like prayers to Joe, prayers to Glenn, like you don't pray to Glenn or to Joe. Prayers, we're going to pray to God on your, your behalf, the one who actually can help. Um, I thought it was funny too, but thanks for a few cackles there. But um, His prayers were self-focused. He was, it was all about him. And here's the deal though. He was a good man outwardly. He would have done good deeds. But his goodness, like blinded him to his helplessness. It was his goodness that blinded him. The next prayer, though, it says, Jesus said, the tax collector stood at a distance and dared not even lift his eyes to heaven as he prayed. Instead, he beat his chest in sorrow, saying, oh God, be merciful to me, for I'm a sinner. The word for mercy in the Greek language, your English Bible is in the New Testament is translated from English, from Greek to, to, to English. And the word for be merciful to me literally means atone for my sins. If you think about the, the tabernacle and then the temple, uh, there was the you know, Ark of the Covenant. And on top of the Ark of the Covenant was the mercy seat, which is literally you know, atonement seat. The tax collector here, he's on to something that the religious elite guy didn't understand. The tax collector knew he could not atone for his own sin. He needed a substitute. He needed, he needed for God to atone for his sin. And I know we're all guilty of this. We say, yes, Jesus died on the cross and he's the atonement for our sin. And yet we catch ourselves working for God to, to make sure like when we've blown it, we don't feel good until our emotions are back in line with what our faith really feels. And so we're like, God, I'll be better. I'll do this. I'll do that. That's person trying to be an atonement for your own sin. So two prayers and then there's two paths they were on, two paths. The Pharisee was on the path of performance. He was on the path of performance. That's outside in living. Keep the rules. If I keep the rules, then man, I'm good with God. 
will break one of those rules and he's mad at me, disappointed, and etc. In verse 9, Jesus started this, it, the, um, Luke starts his narrative of this when he says, Then Jesus told this story to some who had great confidence in their own righteousness and scorned everyone else. Hmm. In his prayer, he was laying out his resume of right living. If you ever go to apply for a job, you have a resume. What does your resume do? It tells all your accomplishments, your education, your experience, etc. So that when that somebody sees that resume, it might catch their eye. Like, ooh, we found the guy. This guy was laying out his resume, resume to God and saying, here's what all I've done, God. And God's like, mm, that's not what this is about. God wants a relationship with us. Jesus was showing that God wants a relationship, and it starts with humility, not a resume. So the other path is grace. We're either going to live on the path of performance. God, look at me, look at me. God, I did it. Did you see me serve? God, did you see me go on that mission trip? Did you see me? Whatever. I didn't cuss this week, God. Am I good with you? And we really do it. Like, let's, let's be honest. Like, we, it's, we're so capable of falling into the performance trap. Jesus said that I tell you, the sinner, not the Pharisee, returned home justified before God. The word justified in the New Testament is the gospel. It justification, being justified, is the gospel that we are made right with God by our faith in what Jesus did for us. We're justified is what, what it means. And it, justify and, and righteousness are synonym words in Greek. And to know when to make it righteousness or justification or whatever is the skill of a, a translator. But these two words, one word for righteousness that's used here, uh, one word for, for righteousness is to conform to the rules, to conform to the lists. But the other one, which is used, what Jesus is using here, is to be declared right. This guy went home declared right with God, even though he was a sinner. God says, we're good. You're good. It's important that we, we remember that. We've been justified because of what Jesus did for us. And we believe that and we work our lives backwards from that. So then it leaves us with two choices here. This is the application for us. Number one, will I choose to live from the outside in like the, the Pharisee? Will I live outside in? Will I compare myself to others? The Pharisee looked down on others because he didn't look up to God. And for all of us, if there's a twinge of conviction going on this morning... Jesus wants to rearrange our hearts so that we look at people with compassion first, not judgment, not, not condemning. I think of the story where Peter, early on in the Gospels, and, and Jesus comes along the shore, Peter and the guys come in, they didn't catch any fish. Peter's a fisherman by trade. They didn't catch anything, got skunked. And uh, Jesus says, go back out in the water, Peter, and, and cast your nets. And Peter's like, what? Like, just, I'm the fisherman, you're the carpenter, you know, stick to making tables, I'll do the fishing. And 
Yet he knew there was something different about Jesus. And so he said, because you say so, I will. And he goes back out and catches this boatload of fish. And he comes back and he looks into the face of Jesus. And he says, go away from me, Lord. I'm a sinful man. He, he, he came face to face with his own lack of faith and, and, and his own sin. And it's good to feel that once in your life. <laughs> that you actually come and embrace the gospel. But God doesn't want us to live in that, that state of outside-in living. He wants us to learn. And Peter's life is a great example of learning how to live in the freedom of Jesus and the forgiveness of God and not walk in shame. The next choice then is, will I choose to live from the inside out like the humble tax collector? That's, that's what we have to do is... Who I am in Christ is the beginning point. Who he says I am. Who he says you are. And then you learn how to live like Jesus. Learning how to live like Jesus is, is not the gospel, but it's the byproduct of embracing the true gospel that transforms us from the inside out. Guys, the older I get, the longer I walk with Jesus, the more aware I'm a sinful person. The longer you walk, you realize, I'm not acting like Jesus. But you know what? I'm aware of it, and I want him to do something about it. And I think you're with me. Same with you. That we're not going to stay on a treadmill of, of performance, but yet at the same time participate with him and allowing him to change us. He gives grace to the humble. With grace comes power, and that power changes us and transforms us. The Bible, especially in the New Testament, often talks about fruit as a spiritual metaphor. Fruit is your character. The fruit of your life, how you live your life is called fruit. We have the fruits of the Spirit, right? Jesus said, you'll know them by their fruits. So how they live their life, their character. And it's, fruit is something that, that is produced by the Spirit. It's produced by the Holy Spirit. We can't work up fruit. Like you don't see a tree, you know, an apple tree. Mm, come on, apples, pop it. You know, let's do this. Let's try harder. No, it's natural because an apple tree's root system produces the, the fruit. So for you and I, there's the miracle of a new root system. If you wanted an orange tree to produce apples, there would have to be a miracle. An orange tree cannot, never will, produce apples. There would have to be a miracle in the root system of that tree. So for you and I, that's what Jesus talks about being born again, being born from above, living in the Spirit. He begins to produce the good fruits of love and joy and peace and patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Those come from living in union with Christ, acknowledging, living in our union with the Holy Spirit. And when you start thinking about these things and you become aware, there's always this mirror that shows, ooh, Scott, you're a pretty impatient dude there. And it's like, yeah, it is. Do I want to stay impatient or do I want to let the Spirit begin to produce that fruit? So I don't know where the Holy Spirit might have put his conviction upon you. I know 
as I'm saying this, I'm convicted. I'm not even preaching to you. I'm talking to myself this morning. If you get something out of it, good. Because, because I don't want to live in performance. And he doesn't want us to perform. He wants us to trust and then participate with him. So if he's put his finger on something, hand it over to him. Ask for his help. Pride will say you don't need help. Grace says I'll give you all the help you need and the power in it. So stand with me. We're going to sing. And as we sing, as we sing this morning, let the Lord minister to your heart. Give to him the bad fruit and ask him to produce the good fruit in your life. You stay the same through the ages. Your love never changes. There may be pain in the night, but joy comes in the morning. And when the oceans rage, I don't have to be afraid. Because I know that you love me. is not an excuse to sin more. Grace is the power to sin less. And it's the power to let us live like Jesus. And so we look at his life, that's what we're emulating. He's promised to give us the grace that we need, that we have everything we need for life and godliness. We just need to access it and believe it. So Father, as we go from here today, we ask for your grace. We humble ourselves before you and admit our helplessness in every area of life and that we need your grace. We need your power, not depending upon ourselves. I thank you for your mercy. I thank you, Jesus, for what you did for all of us. May we live in that authority and live in that position of who we are in Christ. In your name I pray. Amen.